0: We'll go ahead and dismiss the school-aged kids to the back. This looks like they're following Miss Tracy back there. While they're doing that, let me invite you, if you brought a Bible, to open it up um, to uh, John chapter 6, the passage that we just read. I know it was a little bit of a lengthy passage, and I was thinking about that, and I thought, well, you know what, if I can stand in line at Six Flags for two hours, surely we can stand to hear God's Word read to us. Um, and this is, if you're new, it's your first time here, that's a very interesting passage to start off with. Sounds a little bit like uh, spiritual cannibalism on some level. We'll get into that, a lot of context there. Before we do that, I want to just make you guys uh, aware of a few things before we really jump in. Um, we are in the middle of Lent uh, this season, and um, we've been fasting from, uh, through lunch on Wednesdays. And if you haven't done that and can physically do that... We're going to ask you to join us. All throughout Scripture, um, that is a command to fast and to pray. And uh, if I'm honest, I'm I'm okay on the praying part. The fasting part's pretty difficult for me, as you can tell. So um, we're encouraging us, uh, our church body, to do that to fast. We're sending out prayer prompts uh, daily um, on our social media uh, channels and uh, through email. So you should be seeing those. I encourage you to pray with us. And then on Wednesdays at 10 o'clock, we have a, I mean at 8 o'clock, Wednesdays at 8, we have a Zoom uh, where you can kind of call in and you don't even have to uh, speak or do anything necessarily, but we get on there and we pray together. And that's been a really encouraging time for my own heart. So that's one thing. The next thing uh, I want to make you aware of is, um, is a financial need. Um, we started uh, the year with a few projects of upgrading our uh, audiovisual and our streaming capabilities, as so many of um, our people, and we've seen God use this way more than I really expected, just uh, those that are watching from home. And so we started a project of upgrading that. We also started the project of updating uh, a room for our teenagers to use at our ministry center. And uh, as you might have noticed, materials have gone up uh, exponentially. And so we're about $10,000 away from completing uh, those tasks, as well as... One of our church planting friends, uh, Stephen Partain in New Orleans, uh, right now he's recording his sermon from his phone, his own phone, and so he's trying to get a system to do the same thing there in New Orleans. We want to help him do that. So we're about $10,000 away. This is not a giving campaign. I'm not going to talk about it, but just today and next Sunday, and if you feel the, the, the Lord prompting you to partner with us in accomplishing those things, um, which we would love to have in place before Easter Um, You can give on our website, you can write a check, uh, just write next 10 in the bottom of that so we know exactly what that goes to. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. I pray as we open ourselves up to it today that you would speak clearly to us. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. We are starting the I Am Statements of Jesus, and we're going to even call this like this section the next seven weeks, even through Easter, we're going to call this section, under the Gospel of John, we're going to call it Jesus According to Jesus. Everybody's got an opinion on Jesus. You hear people say, well, my Jesus would or wouldn't, whatever that is. Be careful when people start using the phrase my Jesus. Let's see what Jesus says about himself. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. How incredible is that? And now we get to see through this eyewitness gospel account the words of Jesus about Jesus. We know who God is through the person of Jesus. And we know who Jesus is through the Holy Spirit's revelation through the written word of God. And so this is just in clear focus, Jesus says, you want to know what it means to know and love God? You want to know the heart of God for you? It is through me. And he's going to say this a dozen times today in the passage that uh, Emily read just a minute ago. Here in verse 35, the first I am statement The Greek word rendered there, I am, is most commonly seen as I me, E-I-M-I, and it's the emphatic first person singular, and it's referenced as, um, it's really used in the Greek language as an abbreviation of I'm, like we would use, instead of I am, I'm, the I-me. Yet Jesus is recorded as using this phrase, and I put it on here so you would know it, ego I me. I am that I am or maybe even literally translate it I even I am. And this is rare outside of John's gospel to see this in any Greek literature including scripture. And the connection is way back in Exodus 3:14 if you remember when we went through the Exodus series of God is speaking to Moses through the burning bush, and he's telling them that you, we're going to go and deliver these people and all these other things. And Moses, a little nervous, asked God, God, who do I tell them is sending me? And God says, I am that I am. And so here's the uniqueness as Jesus uses that same phrase When the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, it's called the Septuagint, so that the Greek speakers who didn't speak Hebrew could actually read it, this phrase in Exodus 3 is literally translated the same way, ego, I, me. So this serves as this reference to Yahweh of the Old Testament, That same thing Hebrews tells us, that Jesus himself would be the radiance of his glory. And this is what John is trying to get us to do. In the next several weeks, we're going to look at this, these I am statements. He's trying to make, he's trying to unveil the glory and radiance of Jesus so that everything else that competes for our attention would just lose its luster because of the brightness of, of who God really is. And church, we cannot miss this. You remember a couple of years ago when we had the solar eclipse? You remember that? It was going to be like a full solar eclipse. I took the day off. I didn't need much of an excuse. Full solar eclipse. I'm sitting out there at the pool. And, you know, they warn you, don't look directly at the sun. Right? You'll go blind. Of course, everyone t- told you that as a little kid your, <laughs> your whole life. So you can't look directly at the sun, so I find myself, I'm outside, the solar eclipse beginning, everybody's talking about it. I was like, man, I got to see this thing. Well, I didn't have any cool shades, and we didn't do any science projects at our house so that we could look at them. And so I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll put two pair of sunglasses on, and then I'll look through a thin t-shirt. That should be enough, right? Science experience com- com- completed. And I'm staring at the sun, and you know, it's kind of cool, <laughs> And then you're looking at it, it takes a little longer than I expected. It's gone sooner than I expected. You know, I was like, okay. I get back in bed like later that night and my eyes are on fire, right? Because foolishly, right, I, I beheld the glory of the actual son. Moses asked God, God, I want to see you in person. Let me see more of you. And God the Father says, Moses you couldn't do it if you wanted to, you would surely die. What I'll do is I will pass by and then I will let you look upon the radiance of the glory that is left in the wake. And this is in essence what we see in the person of Jesus. It's Jesus saying, you want to know who God the Father is, you can't see him, but you can see me. And I am the radiance of his glory. So church, we should listen and honor and obey the word of God. But, but if there's ever a more important time to do it, it is when Jesus is speaking of himself. And this is what we see in this passage. Jesus teaching us what God is like. He's confronting the false images that we've had of him. We see, if you missed last week, I encourage you to catch the... Uh, podcast of Jason introducing this in John chapter 6 as Jesus does this incredible miracle of feeding the 5,000 and Jesus is going to come from that to this very passage it's kind of part two of this message and he's going to use that as an illustration and the people's desire for more of that to teach us who he really is Skip all the way down to 66, verse 66. Jesus is going to give this really hard teaching. This was not in the reading. In verse 66, and then we're going to go back to the top and kind of cover a lot. Verse 66 says, and after this, after the teaching Jesus is about to give, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They turned back. You know, his disciples began to grow. He's done the miracles, the water and the wine, the healing at the pool of Siloam. He's fed the 5,000 and the number of people that are kind of the roadies, right, that are following him around are swelling and swelling and swelling until he gives this talk and he clears the room. After this, many of the disciples, his disciples turn back. Why did they do that? Because he's going to say some things today that really offended them. And if you're not careful, it will really offend you. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard his teaching, heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But because they're only looking for a prophet who teaches a new philosophy of life or a life coach who can give them the 10 steps to a better life, They're not prepared for a gospel that would literally rock their world. They're not ready to see a glorious Savior who's literally going to be this full paradigm shift that's going to blow their minds. And they're going to say, Jesus, we really don't like that part of you. And today, in our own culture, maybe in our own minds, as we encounter the real Jesus through the written word of God, we're tempted to say the same thing. Jesus, we really don't like that part of you. As a matter of fact, several months ago uh, during the pandemic, we, were, uh, we, did a, we did a series called Refresh. I don't know if you remember. We were just kind of clarifying who we are as a church and what we're going after and I remember having this conversation as we talk about social justice, as we talk about adoption, and as we talk about um, uh, serving our, our downtown friends and, 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 and planting new churches and, and, and reaching an unreached people group in Southeast Asia and all these things. And man, it's just like all good. And then we get to this very thing, to be disciples of Jesus. And they said, hold on, hold on a second. Do we have to include that one? I don't I don't really like that one. And it was just such it was such just a moment of truth to expose what's really in a heart. That we feel like when we come to follow Jesus that he's some salad bar and we can like, you know, golden corral, we can take what we want and we can leave what we don't want. But that's not that's not the God that we serve. He does not give us that option. Jesus would make it very clear to these people that they either believed him or they didn't. And they had to accept all that he taught or they had to reject everything altogether. They didn't understand the real problem. Think about this. They were his disciples. They were walking with him. They saw him take the fish fillet sandwich and make 5,000 of them. And yet they were so short-sighted that they walked away. A lot of times when Jesus talks, he, he kind of uses this three-step process, a mirror that we would see ourselves in, a window that we would see where we're headed, the possibility of what the path we're on, and a door that we can walk through. So we're going to go under those headings and look through those very things, starting in verse 22. Remember, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw where he had, uh, he had been, only one boat there. And that Jesus hadn't entered that one boat with his disciples, these detectives here. But that his disciples had gone away alone. And other boats from Tiberius came near to the place. Someone had tweeted, hey, Jesus is multiplying filet of fish. Let's go check him out as soon as we can. And so they show up from Tiberius, and they're like, okay, where's he at? Oh, he's not here. Verse 24, so the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They themselves got into the boats. Certainly not all of them could fit into the boats. And they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And they found him on the other side of the sea. And they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. If you missed last week, let me catch you up. Remember that he had fed the 5,000. Evidently, the food was really good. They wanted more. Let's go find the golden goose, per se. Let's see if he can do it again. They're later even going to ask him, Jesus, what sign are you going to do again? But focus in on verse 25. I love this question. When they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus immediately goes to the mirror, straight to the heart, by teaching them, truly, truly, I say to you. He doesn't answer their question. And this happens a lot in the life of Jesus, that someone will ask a question, and Jesus will give them the real answer they're searching for, but not the question that they asked. The answer should have been, well, I walked over the Sea of Galilee in the nighttime to help my disciples. And then I miraculously transported their boat across the remaining distance of the sea. And that's how I'm here. You can read that in the passage above. But he didn't. He uses this as an opportunity to turn the mirror on themselves. Not on the surface level, but on the, at the depth of their soul level. Like, what are you really after? Verse 26, he uses the phrase truly, truly. Remember when he drops this truly, truly in the gospel of John, that's when you, that's when you know things are getting serious. My dad was a pastor his whole life. It's all I remember. And he was a pastor who cried a lot in sermons. And I remember these moments just, watching him as he would preach the texts, normally behind a big wooden pulpit of some sort, And he would get to this place where he was making this heart appeal to the people. And he would come alongside of the pulpits and he would kind of lean on it and then he would make this passionate plea. Like if you didn't hear anything else, please hear this. And this is what Jesus does when he's teaching. When you look through the the gospel of John, he uses this introductory phrase of truly, truly. And don't miss this truth bomb either. This is where he uses the mirror. Instead of telling them when and why he came, he told them why they came. Because they wanted more food miraculously provided by Jesus. And Jesus is going to step by step through this passage, reveal the idols of their heart. The things they really want, the things they're really after, the things that they're really there to worship. The first, and maybe the most obvious, is the idol of comfort. In a day where you, in an agrarian society, where you waited on the harvest and you had to store things up in a desert like climate, bread was not readily accessible. And if the bread that was, was expensive, most people lived day to day. That means they worked a day so that they could eat and feed their families on that day. And yet Jesus shows up, takes the bread and fish, multiplies it to 5,000. And they said, man, we got to keep this guy around. Look at his talents. Look at his supernatural talents. Gift. Their idol was the idol of comfort. They wanted more bread that they didn't have to work for. And it's bread from heaven. I mean, that's got to be good bread. So many of us chase this very idol, the idol of comfort. If 2020 taught us anything, we don't do hard and difficult very well. We readily agree that anything that hurts must be bad. This idol of comfort, this lack of stress, this pulling away from the tension, this this freedom to do anything that I want to do, to do what makes me feel good. The idol of comfort. And certainly they had it. That's why they were after him. Jesus, do it again, they would say. The filet of fish was great. Now we want burritos. Do something like this, Jesus. Do it again. It's the idol of comfort. And for some of them, it was the idol of power. They wanted bread, but more than just the bread, they wanted the display of the miraculous and a miracle king who would lead them against their Roman oppressors. The idol of power, this winning at all costs, this successful, never-losing influence can be an idol. How great is your gift, Jesus? If you can do it for 5,000, can you do it for 50,000 or 500,000? Is there any way, instead of, instead of the, the fish and the bread, that you could do swords or chariots or tanks? Like, you know, how great is your gift? Jesus, what do we have to do to please you enough that you will be our king and unleash hell, hell on Rome? The idol of power. There's many people. To try to climb this corporate ladder of success to get more power and more influence and more power and more influence in every stage of the company and every desiring the corner office or desiring the bigger checks or desiring the greater job title. And they work endlessly trying to get it, trying to get it. And then they get it and they realize that the idol lied to them. That it did nothing for their soul. The idol of power. There's a third idol in a group here, and it's this idol of control, this idol of certainty. We want an idol of certainty. Again, if 2020 has wrung anything out of myself, it's this idol of certainty. I, I want to know what I can depend on. I want to know that my kids are going to go to school next week. I want to set up my schedule the way I want to set it up. I want a dependable economy. I want to feel safe and secure. I I want all these things because I want to be the one that's in charge. I want my kids to act a certain way and my wife to respond to me a certain way. And I want my neighbors to act a certain way. And how dare you take out an actual checkbook when you're checking out at a place You're you're, you're wasting all the time. You're throwing my schedule off. I want to be the one that's in control, that has the certainty. And God's like, no, look, that doesn't count. You either worship me or you worship the idol of certainty. You can't do both. This last chapter, later in this chapter, John tells us that this took place at the synagogue in Capernaum for this very purpose. At a Sabbath service. According to Matthew 15, they're Jewish leaders in the crowd from Jerusalem, and they had come to Capernaum to question Jesus. They were part of that crowd that's interviewing him. Jesus, show us what you can do. And they didn't like all the stuff that Jesus was saying. Remember, they had come up with all the tests and the rules to see who is in and who is out, and how you can please God, and how many steps you can take on the Sabbath, and all of those things. Jesus so frustrated them would later address them as the blind leading the blind. Jesus is so good at this, using his words, for us, the very word of God, as a mirror to confront the idols in our own heart. This is not just about lost and saved, friends. You know, it's it's about where you place your ultimate trust. That's why James says that we can have joy in all circumstances because of what it's producing in us. Because we trust a God in heaven, a Father who loves us and knows us, Is going to use any bad thing in this life to grow us and ultimately to reflect the glory of God to a watching world. But we don't want that because sometimes that involves pain, and sometimes that involves difficulty, and sometimes that involves uncertainty, and sometimes that involves you being without control. But this is the word of God. James would later even talk about the word of God as a mirror in verse chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law. The law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be be blessed in his doing. Can I tell you how many times after a message has been preached and I see you in the back as you're about to leave and I say, hey man, have a good week, and you'll say, man, that was a good word, pastor. I just sure wish my husband was here to hear it. I wish my wife was here to hear it. I wish my kids could have heard it. I wish my neighbors could have heard it. I wish they could have heard it too, but that's up to God. You know who did hear it? You. Be a hearer who acts. Let the word of God do its work in us. This is really why most of us do not have the discipline of letting the word of God read us. Because we're scared of what it's going to say. And we want to blame everything else, the situation, uh, how difficult things were, I was up way too late, my wife's not acting like she's supposed to, husband, you you don't understand my story. Listen, God understands all of those things. What is the word of God saying to you like a skilled surgeon, the Holy Spirit, dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, exposing the idols that creep into our own hearts? Friends, what do we do with the Word of God? These people would soon dismiss it because it didn't say what they wanted it to say. And how dare we as a church dismiss the Word of God? I ask this question because it gets right at the heart of our text. How much time do you spend a week hearing and receiving and applying the Word of God? Maybe back it up one more step. How much time do you spend even exposed to the Word of God? Well, you're here this morning, right? So that's at least an hour. Suppose you're above average and you make a gathering with the church every Sunday a priority. The average committed Christian in the U.S. is one and a half Sundays per month. And experts think post-COVID it's going to be once every other month. This is the committed Christian in the United States. But you're clearly so far above average, so we're going to assume that you're going to be committed to sitting under the teaching of God's word on a weekly basis. And maybe you make our equipping hour a priority. You come. Jason's teaching through still uh, rhythms of biblical disciplines. Um, The ladies' class is going through the book of Hebrews. Maybe you make that a priority, and you're going to get another hour under your belt. Let's say you're a super Christian, and you're even going to commit to being in a a missional community, our small groups, or, or a huddle where you're really talking about God's word. You're going to put another hour on the belt every week. Gathering, equipping class, now you're the MC or a huddle. And let's say you're even disciplined to read God's word 10 minutes a day. That's another hour. You've got four hours a week under the word of God. That's about 4% of your time. The average in here would be 112 waking hours in a week. The most committed, four hours exposed to the word of God. Now, what, what's the big deal? Why is Jesus answering in such a specific way? He's trying to invite them just to see reality. That every one of us is on a path somewhere. So the mirror reflects what's really going on in your heart. What are you really worshiping, friend? And then the next, we're going to look through a window of the path that we're on. Every one of us in here, we're on a path and we're headed in a direction. And that direction ultimately has a destination. And Jesus is going to show us what that is. Here's the window. To frame for them where the path is taking them. You know, way before Google Maps... And even before MapQuest, you remember when you used to print the little sheets out and try to follow those as confusing as they were? Remember before that, you just had the only real, unless you had like the big atlas that you pulled out, your only real option was to ask a stranger. You remember this? And you just never knew how trustworthy a stranger was going to be or how well they were at giving directions. Because they would say, hey, I want you especially if you're in the country, I want you to head down yonder and turn at the big oak tree. What does that mean? There's a lot of big oak trees. You're going to go around the rock, you know, so and so far, and it's going to be right there on your right. The destination. This is what Jesus is trying to, the path that is taking them. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus referring to himself, remember in the Gospel of John, he uses this phrase, Son of Man, very often. He didn't use Messiah because it had too much religious tones; They couldn't handle it, too much side discussion. But the Son of Man is going to give you this eternal life, this food that endures. Remember several months ago, we were uh, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well And Jesus is taking things deeper. She thinks he's talking about physical water. He's really talking about spiritual water. Same thing's happening here. These people don't really get it. Physical bread is just a picture of real bread for the soul, so to speak. Real soul satisfaction, real joy, real purpose, real hope, real contentment. All available through what? Through Jesus. So here's the path that's in front of us. Don't chase after the things in life that eventually are going to fade away. Don't don't chase after the temporary. This is a real warning for us, church. Maybe a hundred times more applicable today than even in the day that Jesus said it. Because most of our world and most of our culture is temporary. Even worse, it's fake. Many of us chasing after what Mark Sayers calls hyper-reality, especially our millennials and Gen Z. They're chasing after hyper-reality, social media platforms, perfectly cured poses, the best lighting, the most creative filters, chasing after a version of reality that's not even real, the rise of pornography, the the so-called friends that we have, the friend network not doing real life together hyper-reality. We're going after something that in the end does not even exist. And we're even hoping to create and extend that illusion for ourselves. Only put the best pictures on there. So people will think about how great our life is. This is not new. C.S. Lewis, what an incredible phrase. C.S. Lewis referred to this as the sweet poison of the false infinite. The sweet poison was poisonous, but it's sweet, just like sin is, just like our idols are. They promise us something they never deliver. Well, how does it taste? <laughs> it tastes amazing. No one would do sin if it wasn't fun for a season. How's it taste? It tastes amazing. It's sweet poison of a false narrative or the false infant. I'm chasing after something that I will never reach because it's not real. These are what we might call substitute sacreds, the surrogates that we desperately use to fill the emptiness of our dissatisfied lives. The things that soothe the ache in our soul that only God can fill, but we run to everything else of overeating, addictive personalities, of drugs and alcohol, and on and on, overworking The approval of others. There could be a thousand things that we're running to to fill something that only God can really do in our own hearts. The sweet poison of the false infinite. In reality, no substitute sacred ever fulfills what it so brazenly promises. Only the true sacred, only Jesus says, the bread of life, I'm the bread of life. Only the Son of Man can give you life and life eternal. St. Augustine said it this way. Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and we desperately and we try desperately to fulfill it without God. All of these good things offer our security are rightly found only and completely in a relationship with God. God longed for us to come to him with our needy souls so he can be graciously and abundantly, unendingly satisfy our deepest longings and most powerful passions. This grace upon grace, exuberant grace, overflowing grace is what God has to offer. Growing up, When we first got cable, I was probably a teenager. Or when I'd be at my grandmother's house. And Layton and I loved to watch Nickelodeon. This is early on Nickelodeon days where they dumped slime over everybody. You remember this? I don't even know what the show was. Some competition show, you got slimed. This is what I think of every time. I think of just the grace, overflowing grace of God. You got a little something on you. And he just opens the vat of grace on you and just washes you. His sufficient grace. God's longing us to come to him with our needy souls, with our desires, with our anxieties, with all the things. And he says, hey, listen, the only way I made you, I created you, that's a God-shaped void in you, as Pascal would say. Only thing's going to solve that is going to be Jesus. It's only going to be a relationship with me. And yet we walk away from it time and time again. We look to the other things. As Augustine said, God's created us for himself, and we will only find satisfaction when we find our satisfaction in him. Friends, where are you looking? Annie Dillard tells of this experiments of entomologists, those that study bugs. How they entice male butterflies with a painted cardboard replica larger and more enticing than the females in their own species. And these male butterflies would repeatedly and eagerly mount the colorful cardboard cutout to mate with it. Again and again, while nearby the real living butterfly enticingly opened and closed her wings in vain. They wanted the cardboard version. And if this is not an indictment on our country at at this very time, Lord, give us the quick cardboard version. Jesus gives us two options here in this passage. He's speaking to those gathered in the synagogue there with him. Listen, friend, you can continue to chase after the thing that perishes, the thing that always leaves you wanting. You can continue chasing after the comfort, the control, and the power, or you can connect to the vine. You can build your life on me and reap eternal life now and forever. That's the window. That's the path before you. That's what all of Proverbs talks about. The two roads. I pray for our teenagers as they get to this real place. That they're making this decision. What am I going to run after? Approval and comfort and power and prestige. And the next thing, Or am I going to chase after Jesus? And your hope is that they don't have to go through the tragic tragedy in their life before they're made aware of this. Listen, if they're gods, God's going to get this point across to them. Friend, the real and living God is near, longing to cover you in the shadow of his wings, where he'll provide soul satisfaction in every dimension of your being. Why settle for the sacred substitute, the sweetened poison, when the real thing awaits? In reality, sin and idolatry is our attempt to fill this void that only God can fill. Do you see it? This even of itself is the miracle. The fact that we can even have access to God on a personal level. Demands that something be done with our sin problem. And this is the door. And Jesus is the key. Notice how many times Jesus emphasized this door over and over and over. Those people who would challenge you, show me a place where Jesus says that he is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God. Just look here at a thousand places. Literally, I'm going to go through some of them. If you have a Bible, would you underline these? This is so important that we would see the glory and radiance of Jesus in verse 27. Talking about this food that the son of man will give to you. In verse 29. And he answered them. This is the work of God. That you believe in him who he has sent." In verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them. I am that bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me will never thirst. In verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up again on the last day. Same thing in verse 55 same thing in verse 56 same thing in verse 57 verse 58 this is the bread that came down from heaven not like the bread the fathers ate and died whoever feeds on this bread will live forever Jesus shows us the door and invites us to walk through it. The door to be satisfied, to be joy-filled, to live a consequential, meaningful life. And this is the key. It's faith in Jesus. A turning to and a turning from. Many people can't believe in Jesus because they've never recognized that they were made for this glory. They've never known that they're missing it. They're so fixated on the quick fixes, the physical bread, that they've never understood what they're missing. God, and the only way that he could restore us was for God himself to have his body broken like bread and his blood poured out like water. Friends, we're so consumed with the small things They're wonderful things, but they're the lesser things like marriage and boats and cars and politics and world peace and baseball and social status and stimulus checks and all the things. Good things, but lesser things. These people ate the miraculous work of God with their own mouths and they still missed Jesus. If we're not careful, the lesser things will get our worship and we'll miss the true bread from heaven and the God behind all of it, the glory of Jesus that outshines the sun and bursts through every beautiful thing you've ever seen. My invitation to you today is to come and feast upon the glory of Jesus, the supremacy of Christ, If you've never believed that you would take and eat right now. Spurgeon made this so simple. Speaking about this passage, faith in Christ is simply and truly described as coming to him. It's not an acrobatic feat. It's simply coming to Christ. It's not an exercise of profound mental focus. It's just coming to Christ. Like a child comes to his mother when he's called or a blind man comes to his home in the evening or an animal comes to his owner, coming is very simple. It seems to only have two things about it. It's a coming away from something and a coming to something. And the invitation of Jesus, his friends, come to me. Just come to me. And second, if you've received him, Some of you have been a Christian a really long time. You know the sweetness of walking with Jesus. My encouragement, my invitation is to keep believing and keep feasting upon him. That's why we renew the vision of him to our minds and our hearts to remind us Jesus is better every morning. While we set aside daily time to meditate on God's word And it's why we help each other do it by being in some kind of relational small group, an MC, a huddle where we encourage each other when we have low days and bad days and doubtful days and discouraged days that our friends around us in a circle could listen to us and they could point us to Jesus. They could just keep, would you look at Jesus? We take communion today. If you got a little cup in front of you you'd pick it up this is not for everybody in the room this is only for those that are believers in jesus if you're not there yet and you're not comfortable doing that that's fine just use this time to think about what jesus is saying to you you don't have to be a member of our church to participate but this is an ordinance this is a gift this is a practice that jesus gave the church those that believe in him and are following him in obedience and could take this little cup out in verse 29 Jesus answered them this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent it's not something you can do this is the bread that's given to you as a gift You were powerless to restore what had been lost. You were powerless to make right what sin had taken away. You were powerless to revive your own dead soul. So God did it himself, the work of restoring your salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. And the bread here is a great picture of the gospel. In order for bread to do your body any good, what do you have to do? You gotta stick it in your mouth and chew it up. Your teeth have to break it into pieces just as Jesus would be broken for us so that he could feed us. And in order for the water to do any good, the juice to do any good, it had to be poured out, and Jesus' blood would be this just that. It would be poured out so that it could become water of life to us, the very blood of Jesus given for the redemption of our sins. This is a meal for our starving souls, friends, and it would be provided to us eternally by Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this symbol of our communion with you through the body and blood of your son, Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that for the joy that was set before you, that you endured the cross. in obedience to the Father and to purchase us back to become part of your family. Father, I do pray for those even in the room gathered today. Lord, as you would expose our idols, the things that we're running after. You'd bring conviction where necessary and encouragement and healing. You'd set us free remind us that our soul satisfaction and purpose and joy in life is found only in and through you in Jesus name we pray amen our part is to simply take and eat and then to come and drink to look and to live what Jesus has done in these few verses has distinguished this one true gospel from every other false gospel friends would you come to him those of you who have been playing church a long time would you make a decision today just to come to him those of you who have let idols creep in over the last year or year and a half as the rhythms have been all off would you just, would you just return again to him I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Phil's going to lead us in a song of worship here in a moment. Whatever you do, don't miss the opportunity to hear what God is saying to you. Take some time right where you're at. God, what are you saying? What are you warning me about? Like the skilled surgeon, what are you trying to cut out of my own life? What's he saying to you? Respond